My collaborator today is Stacey Parson, an executive coach and leadership development guide who works with various organizations on transformative change. This interview is chock full of wisdom and great ideas to chew on and contemplate. Stacy gets right to the point with pithy insights and guidance on how to envision a future state of inclusion and representation. She talks about how discomfort is a sign that you are in the territory of growth and the importance of becoming anti-fragile, learning how to meet stress and develop resilience, but also how to become better as a result. Stacy also shares excellent guidance for engagement, like how to tell when an organization is truly ready for culture change, and ways to disrupt limiting beliefs that prevent folks from owning what they are capable of and stepping into their power. Thank you, Stacy, so much for making time to collaborate on an episode of Everything is Workable. Wonderful to have you here. You're welcome. So I've been playing with my opening question, and I know I gave you like prep for this of what my opening question usually is, which is what was your experience of moving from I am suffering to there is suffering? But I'm trying yeah. some different versions of it. And so I'm trying out also, what were some formative experiences in your life that helped you to get to where you are now? Oh, wow, that's a big one. And by where I am now, you mean as a human who's in, on the planet at this point in time? <laughs> So we did this exercise as a part of a leadership development program that I was a part of about 15 years ago. And the things that stood out for me then are mostly the things that stand out for me now. The first one is remembering in fourth grade when a portion of the class would get to go on a whale watching trip during certain parts of the year. And I was curious about who got to go and why. And so I asked my mom, she checked it out. And turned out it was uh, field trips for the gifted kids. And I remember telling my mom, oh, I want to go whale watching. And so she signed me up to take the gifted test. And as it turned out, I did not pass the gifted test. So I remember locking in from that experience that it's better to be smart because you get to do cool things. So that probably started me along a path of trying to keep up with the smart kids. And I recorded this experience in a very specific way, um, which is that I wasn't one of those kids. And it was important to kind of just try to keep up with them. So that was a story uh, and, and a limiting belief that I held on to for quite a while. Probably, uh, I think, uh, I'll bookend it with another experience that was really important to me. Two years ago, I was invited to speak at the Stanford Black Alumni Summit. And at first I said no, because it was going to require me to face two of my biggest fears, which are, which were <laughs> being smart enough and being black enough. And so originally I said no, but my business partner, Angela Taylor, said it's important for you to do it for many reasons. And so I listened to her instead of me. I ended up doing it. It went well. I remember receiving a standing ovation at the end of it. And it was in that moment where both of those fears dissolved. So you can see that narrative stayed with me for a very long time. And still there's, you know, a shadow of some of those things, but not nearly as gripping as it has been in the past. So those are two, one really early, one really recently. I'm gonna put one more in there for you uh, in, the, in the middle, which is being a part of the Stanford Women's Basketball 1990 National Championship team. Cool. 
Yeah, the reason I bring that one up is because it is, like you said, it's a very cool experience that not a lot of people get to have. And what it taught me was numerous life lessons, uh, one of which I continue to use in my leadership development work, which is how to envision something that feels in some ways uh, extraordinary at, you know, on one end and maybe even impossible in some, in, in some ways, and to map that out and execute on it. And that's a lot of what I work with teams around today and the lessons that I learned around mindset and how you have to think about and approach an audacious goal and mm-hmm. what you have to tell yourself in every day uh, in every moment to stay motivated around that. I also learned in that year that it's really important to understand if you really want something or not and to not make it other people's fault if you're not doing what you need to do to get that thing. Mm. So those are also lessons that get woven into the limiting belief work that I do today. Yeah, fantastic. Oh, this is going to be such a great conversation. (laughs) I've already taken so many notes, (laughs) things I'm going to talk about and come back to and ask you about. Before we go into that, though, so I learned about you and your work through my dear friend, Aletha, shout out to Aletha, uh, who described attending one of your offerings as, and this is quotes, the single best professional development workshop for women that she had ever been to. And that she thinks mm-hmm. every company in the world needs this woman. And I was like, cool. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> that Lisa. sounds great. <laughs> um, and this transforming limiting beliefs that you've been talking about, like just connecting with those limiting beliefs, like that you have to be yes. one of those smart kids. And what does it mean to be the smart kid as well? Uh, who gets to decide who's gifted and what the qualifications are for that, all those things. So what can you say just a little bit more, like you've talked about it, you started to touch on it. What can you say about transformation in your own life that has led you to be able to help others with transforming their own limited beliefs, knowing that you can't change people, but you can support them (laughs) in their own work. The longer I live, I really do think most of what I've learned, I learned on a basketball court at some point. (laughs) Um, One of the things that I think I love about sports and in particular basketball is the micro movements, the little things that if you do them well, make a really big difference. And I think I learned that lesson early on because I was just really fortunate to have really skilled coaches that both understood the game, they understood um, how to develop the people on their team, and they understood that investing in the fundamental things would make a difference in the long run. And that, that continued throughout my college experience. And then when I got into college, my coach Tara Vanderveer did an exceptionally wonderful job of that, is, is putting in the little things every day that if we continued to do them would make all the difference. And Max, uh, Malcolm Gladwell talks about this in his, um, in his book when he talks about the 10,000 hours. And what I think the biggest thing around transformation that, uh, that I continue to carry forward into my life and when I work with people now is not just the idea of practice, but practicing it the right way. So it's a really simple tenet that I bring in. And I think this might be why Aletha had the feedback that she had, which is you can't get better at something if you don't practice it. And so part of what I build into any of the work that I'm doing with people, whether it's working with them for 10 minutes or two days or six months, is that we 
get as many iterations in as possible of the thing that we're working on so that you can start to build the muscle memory of doing it as well as the mental landscape to go out into. So to create space in your own mind around doing the thing so that when you leave the classroom, you have a memory, you have a familiarity with doing that thing in the real world that makes it more likely to happen. My goal always in working with an individual or teams is to get them to try it outside of the classroom. So mm -hmm. I'm doing whatever I can in the classroom to build up their confidence, to create more familiarity, to create more trust in themselves to try that, regardless of what the circumstances are that they'll be facing. So I think there's something in uh, this idea of transformation that has to do with repetition. But even before that, how do we get into action before we're comfortable? Well, that's also another um, aspect of transformation that I think is extremely important is that you have to decide that you want to transform and then get in the motion of that before it feels good. Wow. And so a lot, <laughs> exactly. A lot of what we do around limiting beliefs is to acclimate people to the fact that it will not feel good until you do it mm -hmm. many, many times. Right. Uh, this is so interesting because I always like I, whenever I do these interviews, I'm always bringing it from my Dharma practice and that that's the, the thing about meditation, the massive misunderstanding of meditation is like, it's all about relaxation. And I'm like, no, it's about habituating you to being present and developing a habit involves unlearning another habit. And, and that whatever is a habit is usually very comfortable. <laughs> so you're stepping right. into discomfort and learning to adjust to that. Yes. Part of what we're wanting to help people with around transformation is to have them recognize that the discomfort may not be signaling what they think it's signaling. It may not be signaling that this is the not, not the right thing to do or that you shouldn't do it. It might be signaling that you're in the territory of growth. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you. That's wonderful. How do you support people in in that, like, what are some of the things that, that you've learned for yourself that you're able to pass on about how to support people with, like, actually, pain points are growing points? Well, um, my business partner, Angela, reminds me of a conversation that we had about seven years ago, where I was telling her that I feel like, you know, in terms of plans that I've had for my life, I'm probably about 50%, in, you know, my, my completion rate, <laughs> um, in terms of I've had in my life. But when I go back to the dreams that I've had, the things that I've really, really, really wanted, I'm probably closer to like 90 to 100%. And what I, what I mean by that is I think when you really want something and you really have a, a, a soul level dream about putting something in the world, you have a different orientation to discomfort. And you recognize that it is something that you'll encounter on the way to the thing you really want and your focus isn't on wow i've encountered this discomfort it's like yeah this is part of it and through this i will have something that's important to take with me as i move towards that dream and so i think for us one of the things that we try to do in our work is to have people get much more familiar with um be in recognition of and be able to in detail articulate what it is they want and the the more clear they can be around that the more willing they are to encounter the discomfort and not only get through it but get better because of it 
And that's um, another theme that we have in the work that we do is um, this notion of becoming anti-fragile, which is not just being resilient and meeting the stress and surviving it, but becoming better as a result of it. Okay, so thinking about what you're saying about envisioning the impossible and mapping mm-hmm. out for that. I love how you put it, having audacious goals. And I'm a huge fan of Adrienne Marie Brown. And this is something that she talks about in Emergent Strategy of like, when you are working towards something, you're working towards something imaginary, but understanding the possibility of that. And the beautiful example she uses is she's saying to black people in America, like we are science fiction to our ancestors, right? Like Mm -hmm. I am a free black woman that was science fiction at a point. So it's very popular for organizations to want to diversify, you know, what you're saying about, they, they say they want that. They say that they want to shift their culture, that they really want to make their spaces more inclusive and so on. But that is a very audacious goal, actually, right? Because you're talking about much bigger systems. We're talking about patriarchy and we're talking about white supremacy. We're talking about these really vast systems that then play themselves out in corporate culture and, you know, other spaces. But, you know, you're working in this realm of corporate culture. So how do you work with people to find their best leverage point for that kind of shift? Right. So a couple of things that that we do uh, at the Dignitas Agency um, we've we've been very clear from the beginning that at this point in time, we're not remotely interested in trying to convince somebody of the business case around inclusion or equity. Mm-hmm. So one of the first things that um, we listen for is readiness and people's understanding of what's involved and their commitment to that. Mm-hmm. So we will not, the first time someone says, well, can you give us the business case? We'll let them know that we're not the right partner for them. So we're already, I I think that's important because we're already, from the beginning, we're working with people who have decided that they want to make this change. What are those things that you look for? Like, what are the readiness? How do you know? Yeah. So part of it is that they're very clear about what their object, they can talk about their objectives. Mm -hmm. They can go beyond, we want to be more inclusive. They already usually put in some foundational elements. Uh, They have a statement around the type of organization they want to be. They're very clear on their understanding of what diversity and inclusion are. They've made some efforts to put programs in place around inclusion. They're able to articulate the fear and hesitation that they have around moving forward. That's probably the biggest, that they're not so busy trying to look good that they're not facing what's in front of them. They're much more concerned about their ability to lead than they are about the optics of the numbers and the data and the, um, in fact, I'm trying to think of a client that we've worked with that has spent more than a sentence or two on, on their connection to the data. It's much more about here are, the, here are the experiences that we're having and we'd rather be having this set of experiences. Mm-hmm. So they're very, even that they're able to vision a future state. So those are some of the things that we look for. Also, quite, we're, we're in a, right now we're very fortunate to have most of our work come through with referral. So people who 
come to us already know what we do. Right. And they are seeking us out in some ways. So they know that our intention is to be provocative. They know that our intention is to be disruptive. They know that our intention is to also be extremely mindful of the change process, both individual and organizational. And while we make room for that, we're compassionate for the, you know, have compassion for that, we do not tolerate it either. And that is what is compelling to people, quite frankly, that we can strike a balance of saying, we understand why it feels this way. We understand what is challenging about this and we're moving forward. And here's how we can do that. So I think that balance is um, what people are looking for. And so they, they, they find us. So mm-hmm. we've set up mechanism, I guess, that we're not interested in getting as many clients as we can. We're interested in being connected with the clients who are really ready to do the work. So once we, once we have the client, uh, I think the leverage points are even in it, like the conversation that you and I are having right now. Um, and you, you mentioned uh, something about, you know, this being an audacious and, and challenging and daunting task. That is certainly a perception out there and a perspective and there's truth to it. And part of what we try to disrupt very, very early is the belief that this is hard work because Technically, it is not a hard problem to solve. Technically, it is a super simple problem. You essentially broaden your pool of hiring. You find those qualified people. You bring them on. You listen to them. These are not hard things. Yet, most of the world experiences them as hard. So part of that is, you know, just to first talk, you know, to, to raise up the possibility that this is not hard work. And then you back into that, if this is not hard work, what would we be doing? And if we were going to be doing that, what would we have to be doing? So in the same way that you have a, a dream that isn't yet reality, you start at the end and you work your way back. Mm-hmm. Because if you started with where you are, what you would see is that this is really hard. And what do we do when things are hard? We, we think we can't handle it. And so then we stop. Mm-hmm. Or we, or we like push we too to. hard <laughs> and we overdo it and burn out. <laughs> right. Or we talk about all the side cases or, in, or corner cases that may be hard that we don't want to encounter, but we miss 90% of what we can solve for. So... What, that's one thing that we try to do is we, we try to disrupt any of the limiting beliefs that we hear around even the contextualization of what we're doing. The second thing that we do is we've, we look in most cases at what's, what's true. And we look very closely at the challenges of systemic bias, oppression, and we talk about that very, really, very clearly. But we also look at the upside. What's going well despite that? And what we... Uh, we offer people is it's kind of like the matrix in some ways, but we're like, these are two views. These are two world views. There's truth in both of them. Which one is going to be most empowering for you to attach yourself to? And I want to be really clear about this. I'm not saying that you dismiss all of the things that are hard and true about systemic challenges. What I'm, what we're saying, what I'm saying is that given those challenges, how do we be powerful anyway? So certainly 
recognize them, but you don't have to attach all of your essence and all of your energy and all of your power to that. Our model is, you know, this might be a good time to just give you an example of our model. Our model has six limiting beliefs and six breakthrough beliefs that are mapped to them. So for instance, the belief of it's hard. Um, the thing about a limiting belief in our, in our mind is that it's a limiting belief sticks around because there's some truth to it. There's some reality that you can point to that objectively would make that true. So we want to honor that and acknowledge that because if we don't face it, we're not going to be successful. A breakthrough belief just has you cast a wider lens and say what else is true. And the counterpart to it's hard is I do hard things. So almost any human on the planet can look back in their history and think of a thing that they did that was hard. So when you put those things in the same space, a limiting belief doesn't get denied or refuted. It just becomes irrelevant. So if it's hard, but I'm someone that does hard things, I can still continue on. So what we're always trying to do is help people, first of all, recognize when they're in a limiting belief and honor that and honor the truth of it, understand the circumstances that are creating that, and then invite them to open up their lens to say what else is true, to find that more empowering belief so that they can continue on to get better in the face of those circumstances. You talked about power and Mm -hmm. power is such an interesting thing especially when we're talking about limiting beliefs and about systemic structures that we're encountering. Mm -hmm. How do you approach Mm -hmm. conversations about giving up power with those who have it? Mm. I thought you were going to ask me the other direction. I thought you were going to ask me how how do we talk to people about power when they might be at a disadvantaged system? I want to know that too. (laughs) I just decided to ask this one first. You can answer both. I think it's good, right? Like how do you approach that conversation? No, I didn't. That's perfect. I would be happy to talk about that. I just, I just was uh, getting my mind right around it. Um, yeah, let me tell you what we say. First of all, we think, and, and this is true for the, the previous question you asked me about how, what the leverage point is. We think it's really hard. So let me back up. When we're talking with people in power who happen to be often white males, one of the things that is true is that they often don't understand what we're talking about when we talk about inclusion and equity yes. and the system. And when I say that, I don't mean that they can't track intellectually or that they somehow are trying to be obtuse. What I mean by that is it is truly a blind spot for them. They yeah. really can't see it. So what happens around that is if you don't know what you're talking about, it's really hard to lead. So what we observe is a lot of white men with the intention of wanting to do good in the world around a systemic bias and and trying to make it a more equitable place, they get stuck because they don't know what it is they're actually leading around because they don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. So we start there with helping to reveal the system to these people. And by the system, I mean um, not just, often they're really operating from their own intra-personal worldview. Uh I love everyone. I want to make space for everyone. Let's just say that's an internal worldview. Then they, then they would say, okay, um, I want to make this world equitable for Stacy and Caitlin. And that would be their interpersonal view. And so they would operate with us inside of that view. What they often don't have an awareness around is the systemic and institutional levels. 
So they're not quite sure how, even though they feel this way, they may be behaving in ways that supports a culture that doesn't make it feel welcoming for Caitlin and or Stacy. They may not realize that they live in a state that because I am married to a woman, I could get fired. They may not realize that someone, you know, based on their worldview could deny healthcare to my wife or I. They don't realize that the realities exist because they don't have to interact with them. I'll raise even just that example in the classroom, particularly outside of California. The, there, there will be like 75% of the room that had, had just did not understand that legally those were realities for certain, for certain people in the world. So we, we try to, to help raise awareness around those different levels of bias and oppression. And even with that, they can now have a container for the conversation around equity. Now they can actually see that where the inequity exists in ways that they couldn't see it before. The Color of Law is a book that I think should be required reading for every human. Okay. And um, I'm writing that down. The that Color we- of Law, <laughs> listeners. <laughs> okay. It does a particularly good job around race and outlining the policies, the laws, the ways communities colluded, quite frankly, to keep people out, deny access to mm-hmm housing to schools, you know, so it, it, it lays it out in a very linear way that once you see it, you can't unsee it. So it, it, it allows for a very different type of conversation to unfold with, with the leader. Now they know why. Now they have a context to answer tough questions. Now they know what they think about this. Now they know what the this is in a way that empowers them to bring all their leadership capabilities to the forefront now because they know more. So that's one of the things that we do. The second thing that we do is we, uh, what I'm always trying to do when I'm in a room full of leaders is if these people, so remember we've, we've selected who we're in the room with. So these are people who have said they care about this. Yeah. So if they care about this, one of the things that we're trying to do is raise awareness around the ways that they are not acting in alignment with what they say they care about. For leaders in particular of organizations, what that means is you have to disrupt. And if the leader, even though they're the leader, has an aversion to conflict or disruption, then they won't lead around this particular issue. So if we've always had a policy of recruiting at the top 10 universities, why would I disrupt that? Because by the way, it gives us what we perceive to be good outcomes. Well, if that's not something you're willing to take a stand around and say, I'm going to open up the pool, then are you really concerned about equity? So those are the types of things we ask. We ask if you are looking for board seats or you're recruiting for C-level candidates, but you're only recruiting for those people who've had this type of experience in the past or one step removed from it, then what you're saying is what we're really recruiting for is white men. So those are the types of inquiries and questions and, and conversations uh, starters that we, we introduce. I, there's two more that I are particularly, I think, root level. One of the things that I often talk with boards around is if we're not in a conversation where, we, where the people around this table are willing to talk about what it means to give up power, then we should not be in a conversation around equity and you're wasting your money. You should just stop saying that you care about this and keep your money. So those are literal words that I've said to people in boardrooms. I, I completely understand everything Aletha said. 
<laughs> um, I'm waiting to get kicked out of one of these boardrooms, but so far it hasn't happened. Um, <laughs> the other thing that I would say that has been particularly useful in these conversations is that some of the work that Deloitte uh, has done around meritocracy, mirror, mirrortocracy, mm-hmm. and mixtocracy, M-I-X-T-O-C-R-A-C-Y, mixtocracy. And just having people examine the narratives that are at play around meritocracy. And we continue to have examples illuminated every day where that is a notion and a myth. And so to really encourage people to take a look at the things that we have taken for granted in the past around what the path to success is to to be much more honest about that. But mostly what we try to do, quite frankly, is every time we're in a room with leaders, we want them to feel like they are more prepared than they realize to lead. So part of what we try to do is once we kind of provoke in some of these ways, we really want to give them scaffolding to go out and start to think about these challenges and to think about what it would mean to be more disruptive, you know, for the sake of more inclusion, more equity. And so we, we have a, a framework called uh, Audacious Leadership, and there's five tenets to it. And we really at least try to, you know, familiarize them with those five tenets so that they're thinking about the next time that they're in a leadership situation. Am I being an audacious leader? Do I have, do, do I have the audacity in this moment to lead in the direction of equity and inclusion? I want to hear what the five tenets are. I'm just aware of the time and I've got one more question I definitely want to get in. But could you just like run through the five tenets quite quickly? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, The first one is in the midst of conflict, um, they consistently recover to commitment as opposed to crisis, compliance, or conflict. The next one is uh, they have a facile understanding of the dimensionality of oppression. So what I talked about earlier and that they use uh, their power to disrupt it when they encounter it at all four levels, the interpersonal level, the interpersonal level, systemic and institutional, Um, that they engage in real talk by quickly and clearly and really, really cleanly addressing root cause issues. So they don't step over things. Um, The fourth one is, uh, they and their organizations are anti-fragile. So when they encounter stress or friction, they actually get better as a result of it mm-hmm. because they know that they're prepared for it. So they're not so concerned about avoiding stress or challenge that they don't actually lead. Then finally, they, their actions get results. So they're always focused on what shifted, not the, the motion of doing things, but am I doing things that actually create real change? Fantastic. So then the flip of that question, as I I had prepared it, was uh, then how do you support those who come from underrepresented communities who often Mm -hmm. experience lots of marginalization for them to cultivate resilience when they don't feel they have power? So this one's a lot trickier to say out loud. (laughs) I get that. So we started this work, the Dignitas Agency, very specifically to support African-American leaders in getting on succession plans faster than they would on their own. So we started with a very specific conversation with Black leaders. And it went something like, there's a lot of things happening in the world. It feels unfair. It's objectively unfair. And this makes us angry and upset and exhausted. And it feels like we're carrying around this 
30 pound weight all the time, every day. That is a reality. And the other reality is the systems are not going to change very fast if we're going from the past. I mean, there's, there's a way that it could be argued that that's a limiting belief, and I, and I get that. <laughs> but let's make the assumption that the systems are going to change at the same pace that we've seen them change. Yeah. That fast is relative. We basically have, yeah, fast is relative. We, we have a few choices. One of them is to stay upset, and there's justification for that. Or we can continue to move in the direction of being more powerful, regardless of what the circumstances. So that's part of what we set people up to do. And I, I, please hear me that I understand this is one method. It is not the only method. And there are people that might take issue with our approach. And I to- we totally get that. My business partner and I, Angela, we come from an experience, she also played on the national championship team with me. We come from an experience of learning how to do hard things, things that feel impossible or extraordinary. So with that in mind, what we um, talk to underrepresented people about is how do you be powerful regardless of the circumstances? And this doesn't mean that you tolerate the circumstances. It means how do you become so effective inside of the system and influential inside of the system that you start to be a change agent to influence it in ways that you might not otherwise have thought about. So it's the same thing that we're thinking about every day when we go into a boardroom or or in a meeting with a senior leader and we need to be effective enough at what we do that they're going to listen to us so that they have a shift in mindset so that the system starts to shift. So what we're doing is we're kind of teaching them what we do when we're talking with senior leaders. Right. We're breaking down the mechanics of getting valued results, pointing in a direction that you want people to pay attention to, and having been so effective at what you did previously that people listen. For black people, that tends to look like, how do you stay connected while you're doing your great work? Because what we're seeing is the gap is sometimes that great work is being done, but the connection part isn't there. And that as you get senior, that is the criteria for being selected, quite frankly. It's not just being great. It's being great and having connection with whoever's making the decision. So we're trying to, you know, bridge that gap. With women, it's where, it's where women tend to let go of their power and not realize they've done so. So how do we help women continue to stay in their power regardless of the tone that the, the environment is bringing? Mm-hmm. I do have my final question, but before I get to it, I just wanted to come back at the very beginning. You talked about giving, being invited to give a, a speech and your fears that you weren't smart enough or black enough. And that mm-hmm. when you are living in the margins, when you're having that experience, double binds are very real. How do you work with double binds like that? Can you ask me the question a different way? Just, I just want to make sure I'm tracking with you. Um, like the example I'm thinking of right now actually is with my wife is that it, she leads a lot of meetings at work and she's been told recently that she doesn't talk enough during them. And yet the meetings are led well and things get done and stuff happens and notes are taken and like actions are recorded. So she's in this double bind of because she's a woman Um, If she talks too much, she could be seen as bossy or pushy, but because they think she's not talking enough, even though it's happening, they see that she's not leading, but she is. So double bind, right? So how do you work with those situations when you encounter them for yourself? 
Well, for myself, it's a, it's a little bit different in both of those dimensions because on the race front, I grew up in Los Angeles with um, a lot of different influences. So I never, you know, to the, at the point I got to college and, I never, and beyond, I never really felt like I needed to seek out other Black people to feel comfortable. So in some ways, I don't think that I felt the, that particular bind. And I was fortunate enough to have the, rever- the reverse happen than what normally happens as someone who's underrepresented. I had a lot of people wanting to help and go out of their way to help. I think being, playing basketball had a lot to do with that. I mm-hmm. think when you do something relatively well, people want to be associated and be around it. And I think I was absolutely the beneficiary of that. And I could very directly start to see it when I got into corporate. When once, if, if the fact that I played at Stanford came up, people would automatically shift their interactions with me. So it's, that's a real thing. And, and, and so part of what happens with that is I have a very different uh, experience than maybe other people where I don't feel the weight of being black and I don't feel the weight of being a woman in the same way, like that it's holding me back. I feel it a different way, which is there's all this room that people are expecting me to step into and I don't know if I can do it. So I experience it slightly differently than probably other people, which puts me in an an interesting, uh, gives me an interesting lens. For instance, speaking in, in boardrooms or speaking, being spoken over, for instance, because I've been supported so, so thoroughly in my life, when I hear feedback that you need to speak up or that you, or I get spoken over in a boardroom, I don't actually hear it as it's because you're a woman or it's because you're black. I hear it as you're not being effective enough, go back and get better. Because Mm -hmm. that's the messaging I've always had. It's never been, you can't do it. It's that you actually can do it. Just go practice it more, just get better. So that's how I process it. And that's part of what I'm trying to offer to other people that there's a truth to that as well. That doesn't mean that I haven't ever been held back because of what I look like. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that I don't process it that way. Right. Yeah. So part of what I think is available is if the feedback is you need to speak more, I think there's probably some truth to that. That doesn't mean that there aren't other truths at play that, you know, a man doing the same thing might not get the same feedback. I think that's absolutely real. But I think what's also real is as we're in a system that tends to behave in a certain way, we have to stay close enough to what the expectations are in order to shift them. So I think it's an and. I think it's an and. And that's part of where we try to work is in the and. Without being out of integrity, by the way. That's a, at no point do we ever ask anybody to step outside of integrity right. or to tolerate you know, flat out discrimination, abuse, any of those types of things. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is, how do you, how do you still be affected? That, you know, use that. In this case, it would be a stressor. How do I hear that feedback, find the opportunities for me to be more impactful in those moments that I'm being impactful and still be who I am? Like we, we're asked, what we're asking of people is a tall order and, we, and we've seen it. We've seen it be possible. The re- flip side of that is I've seen places where women can get all of those outcomes and still hide. And so that's where I, that, so for, for me, that's where I can imagine there might be a truth to speaking more. Yeah. It's the both end, which is like a, that's a really 
again, like a Dharma teaching that I work with all the time. Like, how do you hold the both end of any situation? Exactly. Uh, so the last question is always actually just mm -hmm. basically an invitation for you to offer anything that you would like to, to listeners who are either doing this kind of work or might be coming from a similar place as you and just starting into this path. Um, so just think of it as like an yeah. open space. Oh, wow. Thank you. That feels generous. I think it might be just to reiterate some of the things I said earlier. The first being that, especially if it's a, what feels like a significant shift that you're trying to make or a significant transformation, you have to act your way into it. Meaning you, people want to feel comfortable as a signal that they should act or take action. And it doesn't work that way. You have to continue to act until it becomes comfortable. So I, that, that would be one thing. The second thing that I would offer is to get better at listening to what you actually think about things so that you can start to distinguish limiting beliefs and give yourself the opportunity to transfer them, transform them into a more holistic breakthrough belief. And the thing that I would offer about power and leadership is in our mind, power is the ability to perform effectively regardless of the circumstances. And what it's really about is being extremely in touch with your competency, your capability, and your mindset. And being, being able to bring all of those things into the moments and time that you need to bring them. So with that definition of power, what we've concluded is that you won't lead, you won't be in your power if you feel like you can't handle it. So one of the things that we always invite people to do is to, to look at the places where you've let go of your power and ask yourself, what do you think you can't handle there? And that can usually be, you know, set up a roadmap for how to reclaim that power, to re-engage with that power. Stacy Parson is a principal at Noah Tree Consulting and a partner with the Dignitas Agency. You can connect with her via LinkedIn or send her an email, Stacy, S-T-A-C-Y, at dignitasagency.com or by phone, 925-699-9953. Visit caitlinschatch.com to find out more about everything that I do in the world, to read my blog, buy a book, and check out my art gallery. You can also become a patron or leave a tip to help support my work and practice. I'm incredibly grateful to my many patrons, without whom I could not make this the focus of my life. Immense appreciation goes to Gretchen Wagner, Julian and Shannon Hatch, Minita Budgen, Margaret Prescott, Val Delane, Perry Pugh, Annika, Jennifer Harkness, Katie Bredbeck, Laura Malkern, Michelle Puckett, and Sierra Love. The original theme song for this podcast was created by award-winning singer-songwriter Tajai Moore of Moore Music. 